So the question for us this morning is, who is Jesus? And if we asked our Muslim friends in the community, they would say, Jesus is a prophet. And over and over again in the Quran, it says, Jesus is a prophet. And if we asked our Jewish friends, they would say, well, Jesus was just a rabbi. He was a traveling teacher who went around talking about a way to live based on the Old Testament. If we asked our atheist friends, they might say, Jesus was a good person. He was a good teacher. He was like the Oprah or the Dr. Oz of his day. But the question for us is, who is Jesus? Not what does somebody else say about Jesus? Who do we say Jesus is? For the follower of Jesus, we say that Jesus is God. In fact, Jesus, when he was here on earth, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen God the Father. If you want to know what God's like, look at me. If you want to know how God feels about people, look how I treat people. And sometimes people will tell me, they'll be like, here's why I don't like God. And they begin to describe a God that looks nothing like Jesus. If someone describes a God that doesn't look like Jesus, it's not God. Jesus is God. God uniquely revealing himself to mankind in human form. So when we ask this question, who is Jesus, this is not a new question. People have been asking this question for thousands of years. In fact, Jesus asked his earliest followers, his disciples, he said, so who are people saying that I am? And in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 16, he asked this question of them, and they say, uh, some think you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist was killed, and you came back. John the Baptist baptized Jesus, so that would be weird if he was two people, right? But that's what some people thought. Other people said, you're Elijah, this Old Testament prophet who's come back. And still others said, maybe you're Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets who've come back. And so he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so this was a question throughout Jesus' entire ministry. People kept asking this question, who is this guy? Who is Jesus? And people are still asking this question today. And you see it in churches and in community. You see this all the time. People are wondering, who is Jesus? And so for three years, Jesus traveled around teaching and preaching, healing the sick, and announcing a new kingdom, a new way to live life in this world. And now at the end of three years of ministry, he decides to go up to this um, feast, this festival, this celebration at Jerusalem called Passover. And as he's going up, the question on everyone's lips is, who is this guy? The whole nation's talking about him. He stirred up all this uh, attention. Who is this guy? And in Matthew 21, starting in verse 1, we have the story of Palm Sunday. You might have noticed on your calendar today says Palm Sunday, and you're like, what is that, a good time to go to the beach or something? Like, what's Palm Sunday? This is a story of why we call it Palm Sunday. And so in verse 1, it says, When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethridge at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. And at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her foal. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say, God needs them. And he will send them at once. And this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. And they brought the donkey and its foal and they laid their clothes on them and he sat on them. And a large crowd spread their clothes on the road, and others were cutting off branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. And then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, 
Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar. And this is the question they were all asking, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, I love how this story starts because it starts with Jesus saying, hey, guys, go over there and steal a donkey for me. Like, did you think about that? That's essentially what he said, right? He's like, hey, there's going to be a donkey over there in that town. Just go get it. And if anyone asks, just be like, God needs it. Wouldn't that be fun? Like, you're like, there's a nice Ferrari. Like, you start hot wiring it, and people are like, why are you taking my Ferrari? God needs it. You know, like, that feels weird, right? Or you go into a BMW dealership, and the salesman's like, oh, do you want to test drive? I'm like, no, God needs this BMW. I'm just going to take it. You know, that's really weird. And, you know, it's not just the fact that he takes this donkey. Um, this same story, Palm Sunday, is recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In some of the others, it mentions that someone actually asks him and comes out and says, hey, that's my donkey, what are you doing? And they're like, God needs it. And he's like, oh, okay, take it, <laughs> which is just so crazy. I wonder if somebody if came up to me and said, hey, God really needs this, would I give it? I'd probably be like, no, you can't have it, that's my donkey. Um, but it's also a weird phrase here, not just the fact that Jesus takes somebody's donkey, but it's also weird the phrase, God needs it, right? Have you ever thought about that? God doesn't need anything. God's the only being in existence that is fully sufficient inside himself. We need each other. We need God. But God can exist completely on his own. He doesn't need us. He is full, complete, in harmony on his own. So what does it mean God needs something? Because God doesn't need anything. He's God. He has everything, right? What it means when God needs something, it means God owns everything, but he never takes something without asking first. God made the donkey, and so technically he owns the donkey, but he always asks before he takes something. God is too much of a gentleman to just take something from us. He wants us to willingly give it, even though he already owns it. God doesn't need our money or our talent or our time, but he wants us to use our money, talent, and time for his good purposes in the world. In fact, God trusts us with money and talent and time so that we can be taught to use our money, talent, and time the same way God would. That's why God gives us stuff. He doesn't have to give us anything, but he gives us stuff because he says, hey, I'm going to give you this, and then I'm going to encourage you to use it like I would so that you become like me. That's his hope. That's what he wants to do. And so when it says God needs this, this doesn't mean like, oh man, if this guy doesn't give up his donkey, God's just like, guess Jesus can't come into the city, you know, it's not going to work out. God could have created a donkey, but he wanted to get this guy involved in the story. And when God asks us to give up our time or our talents or our money, what he's asking us to do is, hey, come be a part of my big story instead of insisting that everything's about you. And part of the reason I get behind a God like Jesus is, Jesus never forces us to do anything. He invites us to do things. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? You will do this, and I'm just going to trample on you until it happens. Instead, he invites us. He invites us to be a part of what he's doing. So, going back to our story, Jesus shows up on a borrowed donkey with a baby donkey, a foal as well which I think is such a fun picture, you know, because baby donkeys are adorable. If you haven't seen them, you should go Google baby donkey pictures. They're like adorable creatures. 
I was going to put one up here, but then no one would have paid attention to anything else I said. They would have just been looking at baby donkey pictures the entire time. So we didn't do that, but after this, go Google baby donkey pictures. So what's the deal with riding into town on a donkey, right? That probably doesn't mean anything to us. Somebody rides into town on a donkey, we're like, weird, you should have taken a car. But what did it mean back then? It was hugely symbolic. Because in Middle Eastern culture, if the king rode into town on a war horse, that meant get ready for war. It was essentially a declaration of war. Our country, our city is going to war. But if a king rode in on a donkey, it meant we're about to usher in an era of peace. It was a way of saying, hey, we're about to have a time of prosperity and peace. And so the king would make this announcement by what he wrote into the city about what was about to happen. And you see this reference throughout the Old Testament where Old Testament kings of Israel would ride into the city either on a war horse or on a donkey. Like maybe they went away to talk to a uh, country that they were having friction with and the city would wait in eager anticipation like is the king going to ride in on a war horse and we have to get ready for war or is he going to ride in on a donkey and we know, okay, there was a peace talk. We're okay. We're good. And so the city was all geared up for Jesus to lead this rebellion against Rome. And he rides in on a donkey. He rides in declaring peace instead of war. He wasn't announcing, yes, I'm about to lead this rebellion against Rome. Instead, he came in announcing peace. Peace between God and man. Peace between um, men and uh, uh, mankind and other cities and other countries and ultimately peace inside us. So the Old Testament tells us that the Messiah, this special person that God promised to send to his special people, the Jews, would bring peace. He would be called the Prince of Peace. And what they were thinking, what the first century Jewish people were thinking was, oh good, when he shows up, he'll defeat Rome which will bring us peace. But when Jesus entered in peace, what he was declaring was he wanted to bring peace to the in internal conflict inside of us, not the external conflict that was happening on the geopolitical um, platform. So there's also some interesting parts in here where you notice that people were taking off their clothes and throwing it onto the road as Jesus approached. This is such a weird picture, right? You know, like, can you imagine, well, in Philly, you probably can't imagine this. Like, uh, you know, there's a big parade, and people are taking off their clothes and throwing it. Maybe if the Eagles win again, you know, I could see people doing that. This is not people stripping uh, as Jesus walks into Jerusalem. What's happening here is it was a sign of reverence and respect. So they didn't have big red carpets. You know how Hollywood rolls out the red carpet and, you know, the dignitaries walk down it and the famous people and the rich people walk down it. They didn't have a big red carpet back then. So what they would do is you would take off your outer coat and you would throw it on the road. And it was essentially like laying out the red carpet. What they were saying was, you, Jesus, you're a king and we're going to roll out the red carpet for you. We're going to treat you like you're a king as you walk in. And the fact that he was riding a donkey in this was a very, um, it was a statement of kingship. He was saying, I'm a king, but not a king of war, a king of peace. And then, of course, we get the name of today. Why we call it Palm Sunday is because you'll notice it says people were cutting off branches as well, and they were throwing them down um, 
before Jesus. And so people were taking these palm branches and they were kind of like throwing them down in front of him. And so there were people's coats and there were palm branches and Jesus's donkey is trampling all this underfoot. So you say, Alex, what's the big deal with palm branches? We, you know, okay, they were killing these poor trees along, you know, the road to Jerusalem. But the palm branch for the people in first century Israel, it was a picture of Roman victory. The Romans would use a palm branch as a symbol of the Roman conquest. And so this was a very political move right here. This was essentially like first century Jews holding up protest signs that said down with Rome. What they were doing was a palm branch is a picture of Roman authority and Roman victory, and they're throwing it down and letting Jesus's donkey trample it. And they're saying, hey Jesus, if you start a rebellion, we're with you. If you want to conquer Rome, we'll die for a, a fight against Rome. We want you to crush Roman victory just like the hooves of your donkey are crushing this symbol of Roman victory underfoot. And see, most people here who were so excited and were so celebratory, they wanted Jesus to lead a rebellion to defeat Rome and replace Rome with Israel. They're like, we want to be the world power again. We want to get rid of Roman world power, and we want to be the world power. And so people look for Jesus to be the Messiah, the prophesied appearance of God coming to rescue humanity. But they wanted them, they wanted Jesus to rescue humanity from Rome, not from themselves. See, Jesus came to be a rescuer. He came to be a savior, but he came to save us not from a selfish and oppressive empire, but to save us from our selfish desire to oppress others. And this is why they so quickly turn from praising him here and essentially saying crown him to within five days. The same crowd here at Jerusalem will be the crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Why? Because he ended up not being the savior that they wanted. He ended up being the savior that they needed. If Jesus wasn't going to do what they wanted, they didn't want him. When Jesus doesn't do what we want, or teach what we want, or support what we want, we either crucify him or we crucify what we want. If Jesus always agrees with you, you might be mistakenly thinking that you are God. Because what I find is a lot of times what I want to do and what Jesus teaches me to do are different things. And those are the moments where I have to think, am I either going to crucify Christ in my mind and say, nope, I reject you, or am I going to crucify what I want and follow the ways of Jesus? So you notice here that the people were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And you probably haven't been driving around and, you know, somebody shouts, Hosanna, or you didn't walk into work and somebody's like, Hosanna. So what does Hosanna mean? Hosanna means save us. That's what they're saying. So they're shouting as he comes into the city, save us, save us, son of David. Essentially, you're part of this royal line. You're a king. Save us. And they're throwing these palm branches down that represent Rome. And they're saying, save us from Rome. Save us from Rome. We believe you're the one we've been waiting for, the special person, the Messiah that God promised to send through the Jews to restore his relationship to humanity. But they wanted to be saved from Rome. They didn't want to be saved from their anger against Rome. They wanted to be saved from Rome. They didn't want to be saved from their hate for the Gentile people. They wanted to be saved from Rome. They didn't want to be saved from what was wrong inside of themselves. And sometimes we want Jesus to save us from our circumstances. 
but we don't want Jesus to save us. We don't want him to change us, we just want him to change what's around us. He wants to save us, not save us from. He wants to change us. And over and over again, the Bible tells us that mankind has this problem, and the Bible calls it a sin problem, which we never use that word in everyday language, right? You never walk in to your kid uh, and say, hey, you sinned. Um, that would be weird. You know, you don't go into work and your boss is like, I've been looking over your uh, quarterly report. There's some sin on here. We've got to talk about it. No, then nobody uses that. So what is sin? Sin is our selfish tendency as humans to do what we want rather than what's best. We do what's best for us rather than what's best for others. We're self-destructive. There are things that are said and done and thought that have made this world a worse place instead of a better place. There are things that you've said and done and thought that have not made your community, your family, your workplace better, but have made it worse. The Bible calls these selfish, destructive actions sin. Sin always hurts us, and it hurts other people. It hurts relationships, and it hurts our very planet. Cancer and global warming and war are all pieces of sin. And I have been a part of that because I have done things that furthered sin in this world. I've done things that are good for me and bad for everybody else. And what the people wanted was for Jesus to defeat Rome. But you know what would happen if he did that? Just new people would replace Rome. There would be a new Rome. It would just be another bad empire after another bad empire. And what Jesus wanted to do was change the people in the empire, not just the empire. Jesus claimed to usher in a new kingdom, this new way of living life, living and loving like he did. And he said that this kingdom would change the world. Now the city of Jerusalem was in an uproar and everyone was asking the same question, who is this guy? Who is Jesus? Is he going to be someone who conquers Rome? Is he just a prophet? Is this God himself? Is he a king? For me, Jesus is family. He's family. Now, I didn't do a blood test, you know, get DNA test, and they come back and they're like, you're related to George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Jesus. You know, like, that's not what happened. I am related by blood, but it's not blood by birth, it's blood by death. In Luke 8.21, Jesus said this, My mother and brothers and sisters are those who hear what I teach, and they put it into practice. And I think a lot of times we have people who say, yeah, 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 I'm with Jesus, but they don't practice what he taught. They say, I believe in Jesus, but they don't practice what he taught. They don't live in love like him. And we probably know people like this. Maybe they're super religious, but they're really difficult to be around because they are awful people. For me, Jesus is family because I try to live and love like Jesus did. I try to treat people like he treated people. And I try to impact this world like he impacted this world. And so he says, you're my mother and brother and my sisters. You're family to me. Now you might say, Alex, I don't think Jesus was God. I think he was just a Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago. And he stirred up some attention. And the government and the religious people killed him because they didn't like what he was saying. Okay. That's okay. There was a point when I didn't believe that he was God either. But I encourage you to try this experiment with me. Try this experiment. Think about how to live and love like he did. If you lived and loved like Jesus this week, would it impact your world in a positive way or a negative way? I haven't met anyone yet who said, you know what, if I lived and loved like Jesus, this world would be worse. I think the world would be better. 
I think he lived the best life that you can live. I think it would transform your workplace, I think it would transform your community and your home. Here's some of the things that Jesus taught in his life. In Matthew 5, 44, he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Rather than destroying your enemies and fighting against those who persecute you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In Matthew 18, 22, Jesus said, forgive others until you lose count and then keep forgiving. I think if we practice what Jesus taught, it would transform our world. Imagine how different your world would be. So you might say, Alex, I don't believe that Jesus is God. Try living and loving like Jesus and see what happens. What I find is that when I try to live and love like Jesus, it transforms my life. And I realize that he's no ordinary teacher. There's something supernatural happening. Jesus was more. But I realize that when I try to live and love like him when I tried to follow what he taught. So I think there's three practical applications we can make from this passage today. First of all, what do you have that God has need of? Time, talent, resources. God is a gentleman. He'll never just take it. He wants us to willingly be about his work in the world. And then second, I think the, the second thing is, uh, do you tend to crucify what Jesus teaches? Or do you tend to crucify what you think? Like when Jesus says something and you're like, I really don't want to forgive those people, even though he told me that I should forgive until I lose count. Do you end up crucifying what you think? Or do you end up crucifying what he tells you to do? And finally, maybe you say, you know, Alex, I don't know if Jesus is God. Maybe you say, I think Jesus is God. But I want you to join me in just a moment. I'm going to pray and pray with me this. Save me from the life that I'm living and help me to live and love like you, Jesus. Now, if Jesus was just a 2,000-year-old rabbi who died, no one hears that prayer, and nothing will happen. But I believe that if he is God, he will hear that prayer, and you'll see your life transformed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, first of all, I just want to pray, save me from my life, because my life is all about me, and it's without point or purpose. And Lord, help me to live and love like you. I'm so grateful that you've given me a passion and a purpose to serve others when naturally I'm very selfish and self-centered. And Lord, I pray that there are people out here who pray that as well and that you'll transform their lives and that they'll sense your supernatural presence and strength, enabling them to live and love like you. Because I think if that happens, we'll transform the world. Not through money, not through education or politics, the world is transformed when people live and love like Jesus in their everyday lives, in their workplaces and communities and homes. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for coming to this earth, for dying for my sin, for my brokenness, for my messiness, and coming back to life to give us the hope of eternity in the presence of God. I pray all these things like I believe you would, Jesus. Amen.